my name's Andrew, one of the pastors here, and we're so glad you're here with us. If you're here online, uh, welcome, guys. Uh, if you're here particularly online for the first time, maybe you're checking this out either live right now in this moment or you're watching sometime in the week ahead, uh, we're so glad you're with us as well. Um, I am uh, healthy and back. That's nice to know. Uh, thank you so much for... Uh, yeah. Thank you for your prayers last week. Um, I had a lip infection. Uh, you might notice that there's a little scab on my lip right now. Don't worry, I'm not contagious anymore. Um, but uh, I had a really bad lip infection. My lips swelled up like a sausage. It was the most ugliest thing in the world. Uh, and, uh, and yet, uh, I'm back now. My lip is not as swollen. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to be with you and to open up uh, a really uh, important topic to us, I think. Um, uh, I, I wonder, have you ever had a moment in your life, right, where you're having a conversation with someone, and that conversation takes a turn, and maybe the person you're talking to says something, and it completely changes, shifts your perspective about something? Have you ever had one of those conversations where somebody says something and the conversation goes somewhere and suddenly you have a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding something and it shifts a perspective and it brings in a, a revolutionary way of thinking about something? Anybody ever had one of those conversations? Yeah? Just me? I had one of those conversations just a couple of months ago. I, I was talking with a really good friend of mine. Her name's uh, Madeline Miller. Uh, Madeline and her husband, Nick, uh, were a part of the Vine for many years, part of the old school Vine crowd that were with us uh, back towards uh, the time at the beginning. And Madeline now currently lives in London with her family, and she's studying right now to become an Anglican priest. And Madeline and I, we were, we were talking on Zoom recently, and, and we were talking about a shared topic of passion that we have, which is suffering and faith. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, right? But we're passionate about this suffering and faith. And, and as we were talking about this, this topic, Madeline says something that completely arrests me. She says this. She says, have you ever wondered why when somebody that we know who is grieving and perhaps somebody in their family has passed away or died or something and we're at their the funeral of that person and our friend is really grieving for the person that they've lost, have you ever wondered why is it that we show up, and we bring flowers to the funeral. And I thought to myself, I, ha I know that that's the practice. Like, I know that's what we do. Like, if you've ever been to a funeral, I'm a pastor, I've, I've, I've been to quite a few funerals. I'm sure you guys have been to funerals and memorials. When you do it here in Hong Kong, often you go into a funeral home, and there's flowers, there's lilies like this all over the room. Have you ever stopped to wonder, why is it? That we have an inclination to bring something like a flower into the moment of somebody's great suffering. And, and I had to admit to Madeline that I'd never really thought that one through. I knew the practice, but I didn't really understand the purpose. And she said, well, I, I think it's got something to do with, with the reality that God has designed beauty to come alongside and be a partner with suffering. That conversation with Madeline and the subsequent discussion that we had resulted in this two-week series that I'm starting with us here today. Because I, I think Madeline is right. That I think God has designed there to be something significant about beauty and suffering. I mean, have you ever wondered why? 
in, in moments of great struggle and trial, in, in moments of great pain and suffering for our friends, we have this innate desire in us, don't we, to do something beautiful for them. Like to, to buy a car that has, has beautiful writing in it and that, that we write something beautiful to encourage inside. Or, or that we want to buy those flowers and we want to go into their hospital room and, and put that vase of flowers right there by the side of their bed. Or maybe we want to buy a piece of art and hang it up in a room somewhere. Or we want to buy some jewelry or something. We have this desire to bring beauty into moments of abject pain and hurt and suffering. And if that is true, that beauty has been designed by God to somehow come alongside and transform and renew the realities of our suffering, could it be then? That in this hour here in Hong Kong, in this history moment that we're in in our city, a city that is still suffering much, a city that is still wondering what its identity is, a city that is still trying to struggle with the, with the mourning and the grief of all the things that have happened, could it be that perhaps the one thing Hong Kong needs the most in this hour is more beauty? Could it actually be that beauty could save the world? Well, maybe not the kind of beauty that we often think of when we hear that word. Y you know that kind of beauty, right? You know the aesthetic, subjective kind of beauty? Uh, the beauty that gets thrown at us by advertisers and the media, and the beauty that seems to fill our social media uh, feeds, the, the beauty that's trying to tell us and shape us and, and to make us think that this particular look, this particular way, this particular trend is what is now deemed and classified as beautiful. Is it that kind of beauty that can have something to say to suffering? I, I don't know, because that beauty, for me, seems very fickle. That beauty seems to be at the whim of everybody's opinion. That beauty we've been taught from a very young age is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In other words, that beauty is defined by the one who defines it. Like, like you see something and, and you define it and declare it beautiful, but somebody else might see the very same thing and might see it as ugliness. Is it really that fickle beauty that could save the world? I think we see this so much in the art world. I, I went on to Google this week, and I, and I just looked for a random piece of art, and here's what I found. Probably the most famous piece of art that has ever been created. Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa in 1517. He was painting, apparently, the wife of a merchant. Her name was Lisa del Giocondo. And, and when he showed this painting, when he released this painting... It really was a, a showstopper. People were really wondering what this was all about. You can still go and see this painting. I, I, I had the privilege on my sabbatical in 2019 to go to the Louvre. You queue for hours, and you wind yourself up this staircase, and you get into this room, and it's a big, massive room, and you're only allowed to stand about 15 meters away from this painting, and it's a pretty small painting. It looks like a postage stamp right in front of you, and you're staring at it, and you're thinking, like, is this what it's all about? Like this? Let me ask you a question. Is she beautiful? Some of you in this room might say, well, yeah, she is. She's a timeless beauty. There's a, a timelessness. There's a, there's a wonder to her, her expression, who she is. There's, there's lots of questions she raises for us. Yeah, she's beautiful. Some of you in this room might say, uh, she's beautiful for 1517. 
I mean, maybe back then in 1517, to be a bit morose and dark and down and not really smile was hot, right? Like maybe she was hot in 1517. Or some of you are sitting in the room here and you're looking at this and you're like, no. Like, she is not beautiful. Like, there is nothing beautiful about her at all. In fact, there's actually, this is a true story, there's actually a whole group of people in art history who believe that she's so ugly that she cannot be the wife of a prominent merchant. And instead, Leonardo was actually painting his male apprentice whose name is Salid. It's a true story. So, so let me ask you a better question. Is the painting beautiful? Like, is this actual work of art beautiful? To you. And, and again, some of you in this room would say, well, well, I think it is. It's a masterpiece. I mean, I mean, if you were to look at how Leonardo painted this thing, the colors that he brought out, the depth of it, the beautiful shades, I mean, the brush strokes, it is an absolute masterpiece. But, but some of you, again, like this group of art historians, would look at it and go, well, you know what? There were a lot better pieces that he painted. In fact, this is one of the worst things that he ever did. And we realize that beauty is so fickle. It's so up to interpretation. It's so subjective. And we think, how can this idea of beauty have anything at all to say to the profound universality of suffering? Suffering that is felt by all of us. How can the fickleness of beauty have anything to say to that? Well, maybe we're actually defining beauty wrong. Maybe actually the Bible has something to say about beauty that we all need to re-remember. <laughs> the Bible actually has a lot to say about the concept of beauty, even though we don't preach and teach much about it in our pulpits. In fact, beauty is mentioned in Scripture over 1,000 times, some 600 times in the Old Testament, about 400 times in the New Testament. And when it's mentioned, it has very little often to do with aesthetic, subjective, physical beauty. What it's actually much more about is the idea of the description of what feels and what looks and what is beautiful. It's, it's actually to do with something far grander and bigger than just your opinion about something. In the last uh, month or so, as I was preparing for this series, I did the hard work of looking at the majority of these references, and I boiled them all down to two slides. Are you ready? This is beauty in the Old Testament. These kinds of words, impressive, glorify, splendor, agreeable, this wholeness, coveting, pleasant, goodness, perfection, at the top there, glory. The overarching emphasis in the Old Testament about beauty is the idea of the concept of splendor and majesty and wonder and glory. Like, like beauty is not subjective asceticism. Beauty has something to say or is about something that is objective and in the world. And often when beauty is spoken about, it's directed to the wonder, the glory, the majesty and the splendor of God. In the New Testament, a, a similar theme continues. And so we see free from defect, agreeable, as it should be, radiant, fame, glory, honor, structure, sublime, appropriate, lovely, fine. The idea here is that things are as they should be. In other words, the concept of beauty in Scripture is not about how you feel about looking at something. The concept of beauty is whether something is as it was originally created and designed to be. If it is, then there is beauty in it because it represents something of the way God had always intended for it. See, 
Beauty in Scripture is a lot less to do with this idea of physical aestheticness and so much more to do with the concept of glory. Something is beautiful if it projects beyond itself to some objective divine goodness. If our lives project beyond ourselves to some objective, defined, radiant, incredible, divine goodness, then our lives are deemed in God's biblical concept to be beautiful. And I wonder whether you're going to wake up tomorrow, you're going to look in the mirror, and I wonder what you'll see. Will you see something beautiful as God would declare and design it and declare it to be, or will you see something that you see reflected back in you, all the wrinkles, all the things that you don't want to see, the excess flab and all of that stuff? And is that going to actually define who you are? The Bible would say, that beauty points us to the goodness and the orderness and the shalom and the peace of God. This concept is right there at the start of our biblical story. Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of beauty. We see right at the beginning of Genesis 1, there's this devoidness, there's this darkness, the, the world is formless and shapeless, it's, it's like a void, but we're told that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the shapelessness, the formlessness of darkness, waiting to bring it into action, and God speaks, and in that speech, the Holy Spirit moves, and out of chaos comes some order. And God creates, and he forms, and he shapes. And at the end of the first day, he declares something over what he's made. Do you remember what he declares? He says, it is, come on. Those are the people who are on staff who got paid who made that answer. Come on, guys. Let's go. Sunday School 101. He declares, it is good. Now, when God says it is good at the end of a day of creation, he's not making a moral, ethical statement. He's not saying this is morally good. No, what God is saying is there was chaos, formlessness, darkness, void. Now there's land and water and animals and birds and trees. And it's just as I designed it to be. This is good. The word good there is actually translated in Hebrew beauty. This is God saying this is beautiful. He's not saying morally good. He's saying, wow, can you check out what I did? I mean, this is amazing. It's beautiful. Why? Because it was chaotic. Now it's ordered and structured, and there's life and interrelational relationship in it. This is why at the end of the sixth day, he creates the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, you and me. And at the end of that day, he doesn't say it's, very, it's good. He says it's very good. Like there's an extra emphasis of beauty in humanity. And you might ask yourself why when you look around this room. And it's because all of us have been made in the image of God. And, and what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2 is not only has God created a beautiful world, he's then created beautiful humanity, and he tells them to do something. You remember? He says, I want you to go now and steward all of creation. I want you to multiply, fill the earth, and look after all of creation. In other words, you've seen me take nothingness and bring it into orderness. Now go and look after that creation by partnering with me to continue to bring order and structure and shalom and peace in the world. So I want you to know this. Right at the fabric of what it means for you to be human is to be a purveyor of beauty. 
in the biblical understanding. Because beauty is this work of taking things that are broken and wrong and messy and suffering and all of that stuff and bringing it into a place of order and goodness and shalom and peace. And when we as humans participate in that, we are beautiful. Which is a real problem. Because in Genesis 3, we have the story of humanity being given the great task of turning the world into more and more beauty. And what do we do? Through our own choices, we take order and we move it back into chaos. We undo a lot of what God had done right there in Genesis 1 and 2. And what was beautiful and right and good and shalom, humanity chooses to take back into a place of disarray and chaos. And from Genesis 4 onwards, the rest of the biblical story is basically God coming again through the work of humanity and eventually through the sending of His Son, Jesus, to show us this movement once again from chaos into order because that movement beautifies the work of God. This is why beauty is about glory. This is why humanity has been called to be beautiful, not to be aesthetically pleasing, but to dedicate our lives to bringing order. So, if I was to give you a biblical definition of beauty, I would say this. Beauty is the objective creative force of God to bring order out of chaos. Think about that for a second. Beauty is the objective, creative force of God to bring order out of chaos. And we get to see this ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, fully human and fully God, comes to this earth. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, he shows us what it is to actually finally take that chaos and bring it back into order again. And that through Jesus' work on the cross and the blood that he sheds, what he's offering to humanity is to step into that place of beauty, to step into that place where the chaos of our own lives and the sin that we struggle with and all the stuff that's going on for us can be exchanged by his mercy and his forgiveness and his salvation so we could know life again. The whole biblical journey and the story is one of beauty. Can beauty save the world? Oh, yes, it can. And in fact, beauty is currently at work in you. This is why when you read all the scripture passages about beauty, it's pointing towards this idea of order out of chaos. Let me give you some quick examples. Ezek- uh, let's start in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. It's not talking about some aesthetic perfect pedicure. Not saying, wow, look at your feet, aren't they beautiful? It's saying your feet are bringing good news, the gospel, the hope of the life of the world, the idea of order coming out of chaos. Anybody who moves on the mountains, anybody who moves in their offices, moves in their homes, moves in their relationship to offer hope and order and structure and peace and renewal and revival through the hope of Jesus, you are beautiful because you're partnering with that movement of God from chaos to order. This is why Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says it this way. He has made everything beautiful in its time. For he has set eternity in the human heart. God stands over all of time, holds eternity in his hands. And he looks at everything and he says, I might see some darkness still. There might be some shapeless and formlessness. But my Holy Spirit is hovering over it right now. 
hovering over your life right now. All the stuff that's going on for you. The Holy Spirit is hovering right there. And He set eternity in our hearts. In other words, we long to be renewed. We long. We have that hole in our hearts that, that longs to say, I don't want to be a part of this brokenness. I, I need salvation. I need redemption. I want life. And that eternity is set in our hearts. And, and God stands over that. And He says, it's beautiful because I'm moving you from chaos to order. Have a look at what Peter says to the early church. Your beauty should not come from outward appearance, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and ordered spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Here is beauty, a gentle and ordered, note that word, not chaotic, not stressed out, not causing lots of division, not annoying everybody around you, not being that prickly friend, actually being ordered, structured, sensible, having allowed the Holy Spirit to continue to work on your flaws. We know none of us are perfect, but submitting ourselves to the chipping away of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. As we do that, that's beautiful in God's sight because we show something of the beauty of His glory. Things just as they were designed to be. Which brings me back to flowers and funerals, to suffering and beauty. Can suffering change the world? Can beauty actually have something to say to our brokenness and our pain and our hurt? Not aesthetic, subjective beauty, no. But the kind of beauty that the Bible defines as bringing order out of chaos. When we take that flower to the funeral, we're not being offensive to those in the room. What we're saying is this is a prophetic reminder that the Lord is still at work. This is a prophetic reminder to you that it isn't all this brokenness and this hurt and this suffering. Look at the wonder and the beauty of this flower. It points to the reality that is beyond the moment being felt now, that there is something good in the heart of God, and He is at work. We want to give something beautiful to remind ourselves and those around us in the moments, the hardest moments in life, that that suffering is not the full reality. There is something else, and beauty has something to say to our suffering. This idea is embedded in Scripture so deeply and so beautifully. And it's one that I think as Christians, if we begin to reimagine and re-understand, one that we begin to redefine the world's perspective of beauty into biblical understanding, we actually begin to understand the power that God has placed in us by His Spirit to bring hope into the world. Let me, let me just share one real quick passage with you to give you a sense of this. This is from Isaiah 61, verse 3 onwards. Let me read this to you. Is everybody okay? Yeah. She's crying out in beauty. That's beauty. Isaiah 61, verse 3. For the God will provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of of his splendor, or you could say a display of his glory. The word there in the Hebrew could be just translated a display of his beauty. 
Isaiah is prophesying into Israel at a moment of their history where for 70 years they've been in exile. 70 years they've been struggling in exile, having been ripped out of their home in Jerusalem, many of them killed, now in captivity in Babylon. And Isaiah writes them in a time of national mourning and grieving, in a time where Israel is wondering, what's next for us? How do we change? How do we grow? How, how do we actually rebuild our relationship with God? And God shows up and he says, I'm going to do something. I'm about to act again to take you out of your chaos and bring you back into order. And he prophetically declares the start of that with some beautiful imagery. He says, I'm going to replace your ashes for a crown of beauty. There we go. He uses the concept of beauty and suffering, and he brings them side by side. And he says an exchange is about to take place. This imagery is important. You see, in Israel, when you were suffering or you were mourning or grieving in those days, you would do it publicly. So often in our kind of Western and Eastern backgrounds, we would do it privately. In, in the Middle Eastern traditions, they did it publicly. And the way they did that was by covering their head with ashes, literally like pouring on top of their head, all over their clothes, ashes. And they would sit often in the center of the town square, and they would mourn publicly. And it was a way of declaring that mourning, but it was also a way of inviting others in that community to come and join them in that mourning, because the mourning was a community experience. And the ashes symbolized publicly that mourning was taking place. And it's like God is saying, I know in your 70 years of exile, Israel, that you're in this time of mourning. You've got ashes on your head. But I'm about to replace those ashes with this idea of a crown of beauty. The, the Hebrew word there is, is like a tiara. It's actually the idea, and it was used often in Israelite weddings, a tiara for the bride in the wedding. And he says, rather than heaping ashes on your head, I'm going to actually give you a tiara like what you would get at a wedding. In other words, the thing that symbolizes love and life and hope and goodness, beauty, I'm giving it to you as a replacement for those ashes. Now, I want you to see something really important here. There's a small word. It says, instead. He doesn't say, and this is how we so often interpret this passage. He doesn't say, I'm going to take your ashes, and I'm going to gather them all up. I'm going to shape and mold them. I'm going to work on them with my hands. I'm going to chip away at them, and I'm going to create something beautiful out of your ashes. That's often how we translate this passage and I actually do think God works that way. There are other biblical passages that show us that work of God to take our brokenness and to reshape and reform it. But in this moment, that's not what God's speaking about. He doesn't say, I'm going to gather up your ashes and reshape them. He says, I'm going to completely replace them. Instead of the ashes gone completely, I'm going to place on your head a tiara of beauty. Because beauty has the power to exchange the grip of suffering and death. Because beauty is about the restoration of order where there has been before chaos. This is why at the end of the passage, it says that we might then become a display of his splendor. There is nothing more beautiful in this world than jars of clay like you and I who can testify to the beauty in us because God has taken some of our chaos, and by his grace, he's made it a little bit more ordered. And this beauty is exchanged 
Because what God is doing here is he's pointing forward prophetically to the work of Jesus on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus doesn't gather up all of our sin. He doesn't try to reshape it and reform it and chip away it up and kind of go, okay, here's you 2.0. On the cross, Jesus exchanges our sin for his liberation and grace. He exchanges our death for his life. This is why when Paul writes of it, he says, in Christ Jesus, we are new creations. Not just a little bit better versions of the old stuff, completely made new. Because there's an exchange that happens on the cross. That's the power of the beauty of God. Are you with me? So when God moves in that way, it's an invitation to us to think about our lives and ourselves as these objects and these worth and these movements of beauty. That we get to, like it was called in Genesis 1 and 2, to be purveyors of beauty in our context right now. And that's very good news, my friends, for Hong Kong. See, I I think the church in Hong Kong needs to recapture the vision of beauty. I think we need to actually begin to gather around ourselves and say, how do we walk and move and live more beautifully in this time than ever before? And those moments where we partner with the Holy Spirit to see little things come into order out of the chaos in our lives are the things that testify most beautifully and powerfully to the glory of God. So we do this in small and big ways. Imagine that moment where you're sitting there with your child and your child's hair is all messed up and knotted and you take your hairbrush and you gently and lovingly knot out all of those knots until the straight, beautiful hair. Guess what? You're ushering in beauty. Or how about with that broken relationship in your life? that you've decided to take the time to to humble yourself and and work on that relationship, to admit where you've been wrong and to ask for forgiveness and to work hard at restoring that relationship, you're ushering in beauty. Or that moment in a business meeting where suddenly you get this revelation, this idea, and you get some idea that helps to navigate the company beyond one of the, the things that was happening right now and take it into that new place or that new project or begin new life there. You're ushering in beauty. Next week, I'm going to take this to the next step and say, what does it actually mean for us to be these ushers of beauty in Hong Kong in this time? And I'm going to share some things next week that will help you to understand what that next step is for you in this area of beauty. But before then, tomorrow when you wake up and look in the mirror, what are you going to see? Are you going to see all your wrinkles and imperfections and pimples and excess flab? Are you going to see just ashes and declare yourself ugly? Or are you going to be able to stand back from that and actually recapture a biblical vision of beauty and say that despite my imperfections, despite that excess flab, there is structure and order and shalom and goodness and repentance and renewal and revival and change and restoration going on in my life. I am not the same person I was a year ago. By the grace of God, that is beautiful that I might see something in my life go from chaos to order. But not only that, I might partner with the Holy Spirit to come around and see other people in my life move from a place of chaos into a place of order. When that takes place, God stands back and he goes, that is very good. I wonder if you'd pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each person in this room. 
Lord, I thank you for who we are, the diversity, the uniqueness, men and women of Christ, people of yours in this moment. Father, we come now just before you. And we know this area of beauty is challenging for each one of us. And there are some of us in this room that really struggle with this. And maybe you've never even been able to ever look at yourself or declare yourself beautiful. That you only ever see the things that you perceive as being wrong with you. In some ways, being stuck in Genesis 3, taking order and bringing it into chaos again. Some of you do feel like ashes are over you. My prayer for you this morning is that through what we've been sharing, there might be a shift for you in how you perceive yourself. That you might begin to think of beauty in a different way. And it will be hard. It will take practice. Because we're so ingrained in what the world is trying to tell us about aesthetic, subjective beauty. But you need to know that there is an objective, divine goodness and glory and splendor and majesty that is beauty in this world. And that you, as his beloved child, redeemed by his Savior Jesus, given grace and hope and life, you are his work of art. You are beautiful. And for some of you, that's going to be a liberating idea. For some of you, that's hard to receive, but it's still truth. And I want to encourage you this week to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about yourself, how you perceive yourself. And allow him to begin to show you the ways that he has brought so much order out of the chaos in your life. And it's easy for us to continue to see chaotic things taking place in our lives. But ask him to give you his perspective. He has set eternity in your heart. Ask him to show you where you've come, the journey you've been on. Who you are today versus who you were five years ago. And glorify him, worship him because of that. That his spirit has been in work, taking you from chaos to order. And maybe just this week, it's a chance for you to worship him in a fresh new way. And perhaps in that, you might begin to then reflect on what we're going to be talking about next week. How might you then be partnering with the Spirit of God to see more beauty come in this world? To see more order come in the chaotic things around us? For our city, for our neighborhoods, our communities, for this church. How might we begin to live out this call to partner with God to see order come through chaos? Father, we thank you so much that your power and your presence is with us. We thank you that you are shaping and forming each person here. And we thank you that it is all for your glory. You are so beautiful, Lord. Would you replace our ashes, exchange them, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone says, amen. Would you stand with me? And we're going to finish our time in some worship.